You're listening to episode number 83 of the Tailwind Coaching Podcast, which is sponsored by Health IQ. Health IQ is an insurance company that can help cyclists like you save up to 33% on your life insurance. How can you do that? Well, Health IQ uses specific science and data to show that physically active people have a 56% lower risk of heart disease, 20% lower risk of cancer, and a 58% lower risk of diabetes compared to people who are inactive. So if you're an active cyclist, and you probably are because you're listening to this show, head on over to healthiq.com slash tailwindcoaching or mention the promo code tailwindcoaching when you speak to a Health IQ agent. And now, let's get on with that show. Welcome to the Tailwind Coaching Podcast, where it's all about smart, efficient training so you can crush your cycling goals. And now, your host, Coach Rob Manning. All right, welcome to episode number 83 of the Tailwind Coaching Podcast, the only podcast on the internet that makes real science real simple. The website, the Tailwind Coaching blog, and my online training plan store, and the episode show notes receptacle is available at tailwind-coaching.com. Now, to make sure you don't miss anything new, to get training tips, tricks, the occasional discount code in your inbox, head on over to the Tailwind Coaching newsletter page and sign up for that at tailwind-coaching.com slash sign up. If you have any questions or you have some thoughts for me or you have an idea for the show, contact me at coachrobdc at gmail.com and you can follow me on social media by heading on over to tailwind-coaching.com and look for the about option in the menu bar on the top of the page. Now, if you enjoy this podcast, I'm going to ask you to do two things. Please head on over to iTunes and rate the podcast on iTunes. There will be a link in the episode show notes. That rating helps me move up the ranks, reach more people, help more people enjoy riding their bike, and get this advice out there. I don't charge for the Tailwind Coaching Podcast. It's a free endeavor because I love watching people enjoy riding their bike a little bit more. So that iTunes rating helps me reach more people, and the more people they get to you know, understand this information, the better time they have. And number two, if you do enjoy the podcast and you want to give back a little bit, consider doing your Amazon shopping through one of my affiliate links. That costs you nothing and it helps support the show with each purchase that you make. And of course, to give back to you guys, all of my loyal listeners will know, take 10% off any of my training plans in my online training plan store with the discount code PODCAST10. And of course, the episode show notes for this particular episode can be found at tailwind-coaching.com slash 83. That's the number 83. I will say this, if I'm a little bit different, if I sound a little bit different, I'm actually in a new studio right now and I'm working on sort of getting the acoustics and getting uh, getting everything set up. I actually recently made a move. Um, Those of you who followed on Facebook or things like that may know that I've made some some changes, um, moved to a different state, different home, different studio, um, and a different practice as well. So lots of stuff going on. That's why you haven't heard from me for a little while now. Um, But let's get on with the show. And that is measuring cycling training improvements. How do you do it? And why would you do it? All right. Why would you measure cycling training improvements? How often do you do it? And how do you go about doing it? Well, it's pretty simple here. When you start on a training program, you have an expectation that you're going to improve. You're going to see changes in 
the way you ride, how you climb, how fast you are, how good your endurance is, how high you finish in the standings of a century, of a Grand Fondo, or how close to the podium you get when you're racing, right? So why, if those are all metrics that you're going to use to determine the effectiveness of a training program, whether it's mine, whether it's somebody else's, whether it's your own program, why would you need additional training plan or training, you know, uh, improvements? Why would you need a measured additional training improvements? It's pretty important to be honest with you because evaluating your training performance during any kind of training block or training program basically dictates the next block of training that you do. If you don't know how that current plan or that current training program is affecting your fitness, how can you possibly adjust that program to change, to make further improvements? If you're not improving or on the other side of it, if you're detraining from a lack of volume, a lack of intensity, um, you're training the wrong systems, or you're simply just, you know, not executing, you need to know that. And you need to know that as quickly as possible because if you're only testing during major goals, you know, A-level goals, B-level goals, it might be too late, right? If you're not performing for a B-level goal, it might be too late for you to actually handle a change for that A-level goal, right? Now, <clears throat> I mentioned goals. Measuring those improvements during a training block will give you a great idea as to where you stand in relation to hitting those goals. For example, if your power numbers are way down, your aerobic decoupling is poor, your aerobic efficiency is on the low side, you know there might be work that you need to do before you can be competitive in your A-level goal, whether it's Grand Fondo, whether it's Century, um, whether it's a charity ride, whether it's just an important club ride, uh, whether it's a race. You know, It's a benchmark on the path to your benchmark, which is your A-level goals. Right, So <clears throat> knowing the why, it's important to find out how do you measure these improvements. Well, there's a bunch of different ways, and I'll go through a couple of different ways in terms of um, power meters, in terms of heart rate, speed, RPE, or performance-based metrics. Um, each one of these has different applications. Each one of these can be used with other metrics at the same time in order to get a more complete evaluation of your training and fitness. So number one, measuring your improvements with a power meter. It's obvious power meters are hugely, hugely important tools. They're amazing tools. They used to be for pros only, but <clears throat> they filtered their way down through every single level of cyclist. You can buy a power meter for around $400, right? You can buy a power meter for pennies on the dollar of what they used to be. No longer is that $3,000 SRM your only choice, right? You can get a $400 4iiiii whatever, 4i power meter <laughs> for pennies on the dollar of what it would cost you for an SRM. Is it quite as effective? Is it quite as... Um, you know, precise, maybe not, but 
you can certainly train with it and you can certainly evaluate your training improvements with it, right? Personally, for myself, I use a couple of metrics to evaluate improvements in my fitness and that of my athletes as well. The first of those metrics that I like to use to evaluate improvements or changes in my training or my athlete's training is simply a mean maximal power profiling. All right, improvements with a power meter are generally measured by a mean maximal power metric. That's the number one thing that you're looking at, especially if you're using a power meter. It's the bread and butter of most of those power-based training evaluations. And the essential gist of it is a mean max power is your best possible power that you can produce over a specific amount of time. Now, most of these mean max power uh, measurements can be found in your power analysis software, um, and it's a really quick way to look at your improvements. Um, there, there are a number of different MMP metrics to really look at, including a 10-second power, which is an indicator of your sprinting prowess and an indicator of your punchiness overall, one-minute power, which is a pretty good stand-in for your zone six or anaerobic capacity, Um, three-minute power, which is that short-duration VO2 or zone five kind of power that I've spoken about a number of times, five-minute power is a medium-duration zone five or VO2 power, Uh, eight-minute power is sort of your VO2 max limit, that's the amount of power you can produce using that aerobic capacity system, and the 20-minute power is essentially your threshold estimation or your aerobic breakpoint. That is the sustainable power over 60, excuse me, 20 to 30 to 60 minutes. Now, each one of these mean max power measurements is critically important in its own way. It really depends on what your ultimate goals are, but there are plenty of bits of information you can glean from that MMP measurement, and especially if you're doing a full profile. You can find some more info on my VO2max articles and the Science of High Intensity Training articles. Those links will be available in the episode show notes. Now, what is the biggest takeaway of a mean max power? Well, the biggest takeaway of a mean max power is that I would not look at this on a daily basis and decide what your improvements are. The reason being because during training, you're really not making mean maximal power tests. You're not really going to that maximal limit. If you want to specifically test these every so often, you can test them using a zone four, five, six, seven power testing program. I have one of those. There's a bunch of them floating around on the internet, so you can pick one of those as well. Now, if you actually plot all of those metrics, that 10-second, 1, 3, 5, 8, and 20-minute power, you'll have a really good idea of what you are good at as a cyclist. It, It tells you where you're strong. It tells you where you're weak. And because of that, you can use that power profiling to effectively figure out where you need to shift your focus of your training time. So... If, for example, you're really, really poor on that 10-second to 1-minute to 3-minute power, maybe you should shift some of your FTP interval time into that shorter duration power in order to build that and improve upon that as well. Now, you can also use it to evaluate training improvements. 
if you're graphing those power profiles regularly over the course of several weeks, several months, even several years, you can see fluctuations in power numbers at those different durations. And honestly, if you're training one of those zones and you see improvement in that zone, obviously, you know, you're training properly. <clears throat> if you're training for VO2 max capacity, for example, and you're seeing your VO2 max capacity drop, that means a couple of things. Either your training's ineffective or your recovery could be ineffective and you just simply can't absorb the training stress. So that is definitely something to keep in mind for a mean max power profile. The second thing that I like to look at when I'm evaluating the effectiveness of somebody's training is their efficiency factor. Now, efficiency factor is a simple calculated metric that comes from WKO, Golden Cheetah, Training Peaks Online. Um, I think the Stages Dash has it. I haven't dug into Stages Dash very much, but in any case, those power evaluation suites tend to have this built in there. Mathematically, it's a simple calculation. Efficiency factor is your normalized power divided by your average heart rate over the entirety of the workout. And it's trying to evaluate the relationship between your power production and your heart rate. Now, <clears throat> it sounds similar to aerobic decoupling. However, it really is not the same as aerobic decoupling, okay? Aerobic decoupling um, is simply a measure of you know, how well your endurance system is trained. Efficiency factor is a measure of how well your body can convert fuel into energy and how efficiently your body uses that energy to put power into the pedals. So now, how do you use efficiency factor to figure out if <clears throat> you're improving? Well, improvements in efficiency factor uh, compared over periods of time and this is a key point for similar intervals with similar equipment, a similar route, similar weather, etc., can give you an idea of improvement. It would make no sense to evaluate efficiency factor for a VO2 max interval one month and then evaluate efficiency factor for FTP the next month. I've seen it happen and people wonder, geez, I'm not I'm not seeing any improvement. It's not that you're not seeing any improvement, more the fact that you're not seeing improvement in what you're measuring, and that's part of the issue. So the overall overarching kind of take home for this is if you're making progress with aerobic development and you're making progress with aerobic efficiency, you will see some kind of improvement in efficiency factor. Now remember, magnitudes of a percentage point in efficiency factor are huge. So do not expect those big three, four, five point jumps. Uh, it's just not the case. Now I did speak a little bit of aerobic decoupling in the third power measure I like to use in terms of evaluating the efficiency of someone's training program is aerobic decoupling. And I did talk about this extensively in my What is Aerobic Decoupling podcast. And of course, that's linked in the show notes as well, tailwind-coaching.com slash 83. But for the sake of convenience, aerobic decoupling is simply a phenomenon that stems from muscle fiber fatigue. As you continually train at a continued effort, some muscle fibers fatigue. And in order to put out the same amount of power, your body has to recruit further fibers. The more fibers you recruit, the more blood flow is required to deliver oxygen and nutrients to those muscle fibers. 
So you have an increase in your heart rate, right? So the longer you exercise, the more that heart rate begins to deviate, right, from a baseline or spread away from a power number, a constant power number. The other side of that is where heart rate stays stable and power drops off. Either way, you have a widening of that gap between heart rate and power, right? When aerobic decoupling improves, you know that your aerobic capacity is improving, your training plan is working. If aerobic decoupling doesn't improve or goes the other direction and becomes greater, again, it could be fatigue setting in or it could just be a deficiency in your training program. So that's about it for power that I like to use for general measurement. For those people who are not using power, or if you want to add another layer of measurement to your your evaluative pro, your evaluative process, you can add plenty of other things. Right? You have heart rate, you have speed, you have RPE. Those are all key components to evaluating changes in your fitness. Hey, wouldn't it be great if somebody rewarded you for riding your bike? Well. You might not get a pro contract, but you can save up to 33% on your life insurance through Health IQ just by riding your bike. See, Health IQ knows the value of a healthy lifestyle, and they use specific science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance for health-conscious people like cyclists, just like you. It's really, really easy to do, and I've done it myself. To see if you guys qualify for a lower rate like I did, all you have to do is upload your training data, upload your race results, or even just score elite on a Cycling IQ lifestyle quiz. They can even reduce your chances of getting dinged for a positive family history or a pre-existing condition if you are otherwise healthy. So if you really want to be rewarded for those hard miles, and I'm not talking about the top step of the podium, head on over to healthiq.com slash tailwindcoaching or mention Tailwind Coaching to an agent to get more information and to get a free rate quote. So let's start with heart rate. If you only have heart rate in your training program, if you're doing a training program that's based solely off heart rate, you have a couple of options. Um, You can watch heart rate averages over known routes to give you an idea of an improvement. Very similar to aerobic decoupling and efficiency. It's not quite the same because you don't have the same objective repeatable data each time, but it, it works. It does work. Pick a route ride it, record all of your heart rate information, and then go back a few weeks later under similar conditions, and that's a key, under similar conditions, and rewrite it. See what your heart rate does. Over the course of that particular interval time, has it changed? Has it increased? Has it decreased? All right? Changes in heart rate can tell you if you've been improving. However, there's a couple caveats to this. Heart rate is very, very, very dependent on physiological parameters such as hydration status, such as temperature, external temperature in particular, fatigue, caffeine use, uh, you know, sugar consumption, you know, anything that throws off your regular homeostasis will be, will be apparent in your heart rate. That's why I particularly like to use speed and RPE along with heart rate if I'm going to evaluate training 
facilities or training programs compared to. So speed measurements, changes in speed over a given interval space or a given loop can give you some idea of whether you're improving or whether you're deteriorating. Looking for increased speed over a known loop or segment is a key. Coupling that with changes in heart rate can give you a great idea of how well you're improving. But again, speed is highly dependent upon the ambient conditions of the loop you're riding. If you go out one day and you ride on a perfectly calm, still day, and then go out the next time and you ride during 15 mile an hour headwinds, obviously, you're not going to get the same results. You might sit there and say, well, I haven't improved at all. Or you're just picking a poor measurement to compare against. You may have improved significantly, right? You may have gained one and a half miles per hour in speed had there not been a 15 mile an hour headwind blowing in your face, right? That's why I say speed and heart rate are very, very nicely linked in terms of measuring your, the effectiveness of your training program. The third layer of that, RPE. RPE is a huge metric to track, right? I've done posts on RPE and how to use it in your training program, and I encourage you to go take a look at that because it's a very, very important post to read. Again, you can find that link in the episode show notes, tailwind-coaching.com slash 83. But RPE, by tracking how you perceive an effort and comparing it with your speed and your heart rate, you can really, really make a good determination on whether or not you're improving, whether you're staying the same, or whether you're deteriorating, right? Where does RPE fail? RPE fails in the fact that it is subjective, right? So it's not necessarily an objective measure like a solid power number, but, and this is the nice thing about RPE, it is individual to you, and how you feel on that particular day and time. Again, can be affected by caffeine, by how, you know, when you ate last, how hot it is outside, mental stress, emotional stress. Um, Maybe you had a fight with a family member or your boss, and you're going out for, you know, to do a training measurement the next day, and that's still playing on your mind. That can affect your RPE. So, I really like to take all three of these measures and I really like to combine them together before I really make any kind of overarching decision as to the quality of training improvements for anybody, whether it's myself, whether it's another athlete. So putting those three together, heart rate, speed, and RPE is essential if you're not using power. If you're using power, these are just additional pieces which really help you nail down how effectively you have been training and how good your training has been in terms of improving your fitness capacity. Now, I talked about earlier your A goals, your B goals, your C goals, all those kind of things. And that leads me into measuring your training improvements using your real world, your real world performances. So a little bit of a thought here, um, Strava and Zwift. I know people are going to ask me about this, but coach, you can use Strava to, to determine if you're getting better at something and you can use Zwift to determine if you're getting better at something, right? Yes, you can. 
do I consider Strava or Zwift to be real-world performance? They aren't really real-world performance in the true sense of the word that I'm using here. Um, yes, they have a lot of value in measuring improvements in fitness. Using Strava involves testing over known segments or known loops. Uh, privately designated segments are a good way to do this. KOM tries are reasonably good way to do this as well. Um, you can certainly see improvements in your time. Could be due to a number of different things. Um, Strava and Zwift are... Well, let's take Strava first. Strava is at the mercy of really environmental concerns. Uh, wind, heat, hydration status, etc. Yes, it's a hard data point, and yes, you can use it. However, I would not put too, too much... Um, I wouldn't put too, too much stock into it. Um, that also... There's also part of this where comparing yourself to others on Strava is a hazard. Um, you can become obsessive with that part. And, of course, there's the ability to cheat on Strava. So, go figure. Comparing yourself to somebody else who may be cheating is, well, okay. We can go there, but I'm not going to. Zwift. Uh, Zwift is a good way to measure training improvements. I wouldn't exactly call it real world because it's indeed a virtual world. But... It is very good at measuring improvement because ambient uh, variables are very controllable in terms of Zwift. And the resistance on your trainer can be set as a constant. In fact, it should be a constant pretty much every time you jump on the trainer. The only thing that you may have to account for is lack of airflow and sometimes dehydration if you're going for a long session. But as I mentioned before, <clears throat> controlling outside variables is really important for your general consistency in terms of your testing. And being that Zwift is inside, it's a great way to do it. All right, set the temperature right at the same time of day, use the same number of fans, the same nutrition, the same amount of water. Your data will be much better because it's more tightly controlled, right? Now, if you want to go to real, real, real world, that... It doesn't make a lot of sense, but I'll go with it. You know, that true real world, real, wow, that is really tough to say. That true real world competition, racing is going to be your best measure of fitness improvements. Time trials are the key to measuring your fitness improvements. They're a singular effort. It depends only on your fitness, not on other outside factors like the people who are racing around you, teammates who set you up for a win or anything like that. You can add repeatability by comparing the results to those who you frequently race with. So you can see, assuming they have similar goals to yours, and you can even ask them, what are you targeting this year? You can see, as they improve, do you improve with them? Do they improve exponentially above you? Do you improve exponentially above them? So if you're, you know, it's an important thing to consider. Here's a good example. In a race, if you're consistently beaten by a guy who's a great sprinter, closing the gaps in the placings between you two is a great way to determine, is my sprint training improving, right? Beating him, okay, is a great way to determine if your fitness and your training has been working, right? So 
Obviously, real-world competition is a great measure of fitness and improvement. Now, for those of you who are group riders, Grand Fondo riders, Century riders, you can still see measures of improvement. Performance on group rides, especially relating to how long you can pull, how hard you can pull, how well you recover in that group, um, how many times you can rotate through that group, how well you hold up to a long day in the saddle and are able to push the pace near the end of a longer ride compared to where you were earlier in the season. Where you place in a Grand Fondo, have you improved your time over a 65-mile Grand Fondo loop, right? The more you ride with people and the stronger you get, the more you'll be able to evaluate yourself against them. The more you understand their fitness and where they are, the more you'll be able to understand how your fitness is improving and how your training is improving. Now, how frequently would you start measuring your training improvements? Honestly, you can measure improvements in your training capacity on any given ride. It doesn't have to be a specific test day. It doesn't have to be a specific race day. You can measure improvements on any given ride. However, this is a huge but. You should never put too much stock in day-to-day changes. Really, In terms of training improvements, you are looking for changes over long term. Okay? I'm going to repeat that because a lot of people get caught up in the day-to-day. In terms of training improvements, you are looking for changes in the long term. Alright? If I go out today, or if I jump on the trainer today, I'm looking at my bike sitting on on my Elite Drive right now. If I jump on that bike right now and I do a 15-second all-out sprint, and then I jump, I go, I go into the office tomorrow and I work an eight-hour day in the office and I come home and I jump on that bike again at the same time, right? Same time of day, under the same conditions, and I do another 15-second sprint, I may improve by 100 watts. Does that mean my training has improved? Maybe. Maybe it meant I was fatigued tonight when I did it. Maybe it meant I drank, you know, a 20-ounce coffee tomorrow afternoon on the way home from the office before I jumped on the trainer, and that gave me a little bit of extra mobilized creatine phosphate, a little extra ATP mobilization, and I was able to put out extra power. Changes day to day really don't much matter. Now, if I were to do that same routine... Three days a week, I was to come home and I would jump on there and warm up and then do a 15-second sprint on that Elite Drivo. Three times a week for six weeks. And I saw a steady improvement over those six weeks, a steady climb. Maybe a few watts here, maybe a bunch of watts there, maybe I drop a few watts one day. But say on day one, I'm doing 1,000 watts. And on day 45, I'm doing... 1200 watts. That's improvement. That is true concrete improvement because I can graph points along that entire 45 day span that show a generalized upward trend. Most of your uh, training suites, your training um, software will graph that for you and will show that for you, right? 
So don't be afraid to use those training suites and that training software to actually get an idea of what your fitness is doing over a long haul. Typical testing is performed every four to six weeks. That is objective testing. And that data is critically important to modifying your training program every four to six weeks. If you start evaluating sooner than that, you really don't give your body time to adjust and adapt to the training that you're performing. If you wait too long in between evaluations, your body, you leave actual potential gains on the table by waiting too long. So be smart with the frequency of your measurements. Too soon, too late, you're really doing yourself a disservice. That's why I recommend every four to six weeks, you actually do a dedicated testing block. In most of my training programs, the ones that I design, whether it's a downloadable program, whether it's something that I'm executing myself, or whether it's something I'm building for a client, I build some kind of testing <clears throat> into every fourth to sixth week, depending on what the actual program calls for. And... And this is a big but. I tend to tailor, and, and this, I, I will say this, this counts more for the people who, who I'm designing a plan for a custom program or I'm designing a program for myself. I'm going to specifically tailor the testing phase of their training program to what their main goals are. So if I have a criterium racer, for example, I'm going to be focusing on repeatability and sprint power. Right. If I have a time trialist, I'm going to be looking for FTP and VO2 max improvements. If I'm dealing with a track racer, particularly somebody who's more of a pursuiter, I'm looking for that VO2 type power, things like that. So adapting your testing, especially to the power demands or the physiological demands of your main A-level goal, is critically important to your success during testing. Okay, so... With all that in mind, with all the information on that, take a look at your testing regimen. Take a look at your training regimen. Evaluate the differences in between how you are testing and how you're training and what you're getting out of your testing and your training. If you have any questions about testing or how it applies to your training or adapting your training, don't hesitate to actually let me know. Email me at coachrobdc at gmail.com or coachrobdc at tailwind-coaching.com and I'll answer those for you, no problem. Thanks for sticking with me. And again, I know probably sounds a little bit different. If there's anything, any changes or any changes you can suggest, I know some people have emailed me in the past and given me recommendations. Don't hesitate to email and let me know. Okay. Thanks for listening all the way through. And of course, keep the shiny side up, keep the rubber side down. Be efficient in your training, be efficient in your testing, and reap the benefits of your testing and your training. I'll talk to you all again really, really soon.